Welcome back to the sermon podcast from Redlands First United Methodist Church. We've been on hiatus these last months, and we're glad to be back with you. We return to our regular podcasting on Palm Sunday. A Palm Sunday is such an interesting exercise in faith. Simultaneously, it plays into our deepest expectations about Jesus and confounds them. This isn't a new phenomenon. It was woven into the story of the very first Palm Sunday. Jesus plays into the disciples' most entrenched expectations as to who the Messiah was to be. Jesus also confounds these expectations. He assumes authority, but he gives up power. This exercise isn't about twisting the disciples into spiritual knots. Rather, it is Jesus' effort to loosen their grip on the past so that they might be prepared for what would come next for them. He is leading them into their next faithful step as his disciples, as his partners. Despite the generations of witness about the nature of God and the understanding of Jesus' messiahship, the Holy Spirit reveals new dimensions of this grace and work in each new generation. With every challenge to the human community, there are new things to learn about our faith response to the demands that emerge from it. The pandemic has certainly been such a challenge. On this Palm Sunday, a natural time to be open to how Christ will lead us, we have an opportunity to reflect on where we are as individuals and as a faith community. Through this reflection, we can discern new and deeper understanding of how and where we are being called to take our next faithful step. From Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethage and Bethany, a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter in it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voices for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout. Let the church hear what the Spirit is saying. We are listening. 
Friends, I would invite you to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So, a quick question for you, show of hands. How many of you remember every lesson you learned when you were in kindergarten? Every detail, every day. You didn't go to kindergarten. <laughs> Says the lifelong teacher. Okay. The only thing I remember about kindergarten is my kindergarten teacher and the day that she, the first day of school when she was calling out all of the names and she kept calling for Jack Greenleaf and nobody was answering. Jack is my given name. Um, and got down to the end and said, who are you? I said, I'm JT Greenleaf. Because that's all I'd ever been called. Let's just say she wasn't happy, and she sent a nasty note home, and my parents read it, and I think they laughed because they wrote back an equally nasty note that said, you will call him JT. That's all I remember from kindergarten. So any, anybody remember everything from kindergarten? Nobody? First grade, second grade, third grade? How about your senior year in high school? Do you remember every detail of everything that you learned? For those of you who um, have a little more wisdom in, uh, in years, what about professional training that you may have had? Do you remember every single bit of your professional training? Anyone? I graduated seminary more than 30 years ago. I don't remember most of what I learned in seminary. At least it, not in a conscious way. But the reality is, is all of those things that we learn from our very earliest lessons, we may not remember the details, but we certainly haven't forgotten them. Because every one of those lessons, everything that we learn is woven into the fabric of who we are and how we see the world. So you haven't really forgotten them. They become building blocks. They are the next steps, the next stone, the next timber, the next shingle, the next part of your journey. However long your journey is, whatever direction your journey takes you, it is part of who you are. Okay? Now, depending on how well, or, or not how well, but depending on how we hold on to the things we know, these lessons either become important steps, okay, integral to our next steps. They, they, they help move us along. Or if we hold on to all those lessons and we, we cling to them, we may end up being a house that is out of date, with out of date wiring, out of date plumbing, decrepit, beams falling down, okay, subject to the storms of, of life and not likely able to stand up to the challenges that come with living in the third decade of the 21st century. You know, this, this idea of what we do with what we know is a, is a critical part of, um, of our life of faith, and it always has been. You know, the people of Israel after they returned from exile about 600 years before, uh, 500 plus years before Jesus was born, 
they came back and there was a great spirit of renewal going on. King Cyrus of Persia had sent them back with money and with authority to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city walls, to restore the city of Jerusalem, if not to its former glory, at least something that would have approximated their former glory. And there was, it, there was a great deal of energy, but the energy did not last forever because in the generations that followed, there continued to be upheaval, there continued to be conflict, there continued to be wars and violence, there continued to be rivalries and infighting within Israel. And so it seemed like the ground was always shaking under them, and they couldn't quite get stable. They were trying so hard to learn the lessons of the past. They were trying so hard to be faithful to God. I mean, after all, that's what they wanted most, was to be faithful to their covenant. But in the rise of Pharisaism that came in through that time, that idea of being faithful to God came down to the, the lowest common denominator, which was follow all the rules, follow the law by jot and by tittle, okay? And that became burdensome. And it didn't solve all of their problems. I mean, they hoped that it would, but it didn't solve the upheaval. It didn't solve the conflicts. It didn't solve the wars. It didn't solve the rivalries. Nothing really was solved. And so there was this rise, this, this rise of expectation that somebody would come, that God would send a Messiah, a king, in the mold of David, and would straighten everybody out. Hmm? Sounds good, doesn't it? Do we, does, does that ring a bell for anybody? We hope for that one person who can unify us, that one person who can bring us together, that one person that can solve all of our problems. And it didn't work. For generations, even into centuries, the pattern continued. And then here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, and everything about his life and his birth really becomes a conundrum for the people of Israel. Because on the one hand, he plays into all of the images and all of the expectations about what they were waiting for as a Messiah. He comes with incredible power, the power of creation at his fingertips to heal and to, to bring life and to make new. He comes with profound wisdom and unparalleled authority. People marveled, even people with position marveled at the idea of Jesus, this, this uneducated person, speaking with great power and with great authority. He was, with that, the image of everything they expected the Messiah to be. So in that sense, he plays right into it. But then on the other hand, Jesus confounds all of their expectations because he doesn't try and consolidate power. He gives it away. He shares power with the poor. He shares power with the hungry. He shares power with the marginalized. Okay? He eats with sinners, <gasps> right? That's like pearl clutching time. He eats with sinners. He eats with, sorry, I don't know where that came from. He eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. 
He eats with collaborators. He eats with people that had been marginalized. He shares life with them. He laughs with them. He walks with them. He lives with them. And in that way, Jesus confounds every expectation of the Messiah. What a, that, that would, to, to be in that kind of bifurcated time would be really confusing. And then we get Palm Sunday, where he lives into both of these things simultaneously. He comes fulfilling the scriptural image from Zechariah of what the, the messianic king would look like upon that day in the Passover festival when he comes into Jerusalem. But then he doesn't come in the same way that Pilate, who also came into town that day, with all of the entourage of empire with him, Jesus comes in by the temple. Pilate goes another way. Jesus comes in with humility. Pilate comes in with power. So this, this, this conundrum isn't solved. Now, modern Christians, when we see this Palm Sunday story and we, we grasp the idea that while on that Sunday morning as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, there are people who are shouting acclamations from Psalm 118. They're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name, in the name of the Lord. They're, they're, they're making this acclamation, and yet history suggests to us that there is some number of the people who were part of that crowd on Sunday shouting acclamations that were also in Pilate's courtyard on Friday shouting, crucify him. And modern Christians look at that and we say, oh boy, those poor, those poor people, they just didn't get it. They... But the reality is, is if we take a deep dive into our own life, our own um, religious traditions and how we approach them, in a lot of ways we aren't that different than that, than that bifurcated crowd, Holy Week in Jerusalem. That we have the same conflicts about reconciling who Jesus is that they did. We have the same questions. We have the same uncertainty. We're trying to make sense of the same, the same issues, the same conundrum. They're getting new information, and yet they don't know what to do with it. The truth of the matter is, is most of us are not very different. When we get new information, when we have new experiences of grace and new understandings of who Jesus is, we have equally difficult time making sense of it, especially if it doesn't comport well with what we have known and what we have always believed. And here we are. We have this, this comfortable thing that we cling to, and yet we're also being confronted with God moving in ways that sometimes shake it, sometimes break it down. When, when we think about moments like this, I mean, there are a couple of different responses. One is the, the sense of loss, because there is this sense of innocence that comes, especially if what we have held about our understanding of God sits really deeply in our past from when we were children. It feels like a loss to us, and we grieve it. Okay? But in others, it's, it's, it's a challenge to us. And we have a difficult time letting go of it because it feels like a judgment 
like somehow what we believed before was wrong. Okay, just you know, right, wrong, that binary, and that 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 old knowledge when it becomes uh, adjusted with new experience then, oh my gosh, well, we were so horrible. We were so awful. How could we have gotten it so wrong? And we, and we look at it that way. And when we are confronted with something that in our, in our mind we feel like it's, it's wrong, don't we cling to it? Even though we know it, it's, it's, not, it's not accurate, it's, it's not helpful, it's incomplete, we still want to cling because it's familiar. But what if? What if these moments of new learning, what if these new movements of grace, what if these what if, what if these new opportunities to conceive of ourself and our community and the world around us is not new in the sense of new and old, not new in the sense that this is better and that is I'm going to date myself. Remember New Coke? Okay. It wasn't new and it wasn't Coke. But there, but the, 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 remember the marketing, the argument, New Coke, Old Coke, as if somehow the Old Coke was inferior. New faith, old faith, faith, as if that is just, I mean, sweep it away. It's gone. It had no value. But that's not how faith and discipleship and spirituality works. Every step is a building block. Every step is a new opportunity to learn grace. Every experience, every lesson is a new way for us to see how God is at work. So what if we think about these experiences not as new experience with all the freight and the baggage that goes with that, but what if this were the next experience? What if this were the next experience of grace? This, what if this were the next opportunity to encounter God in a significant way in our life and the world? What if this were just merely the next step in our growth, in our discipleship, in our becoming disciples? The next step meaning that it's not the last, that there will be another next step, and probably one after that, and one after that, and a hundred after that. The next. How does our perception of our self, our relationship with God, and our relationship within the community, how does it change when we make that, that emotional, spiritual, and intellectual leap from new to next? In this, not only just this Lenten season, but as we think about everything that we've experienced in the last two years of a global pandemic, where has God's grace been at work in your life? To move you beyond predetermined expectations about how life should be, how relationships should be, how faith should be, how church should be, how worship should be should be? What if God is at work moving you beyond the, the limiting assumptions of pre-pandemic life? Like 
oh my gosh, we could never worship online. Remember, I've asked you the question before. If I had told you um, in January of 2020 that within 10 weeks, you would not be worshiping in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, but you would be watching it through your computer and your TV. And no, it's not the same, but you know what? It's better than we thought it would be. That you would have better attendance than you do in person. Okay? If I had told you that in January of 2020, uh, you'd be calling the superintendent for a new appointment because I had, you know, What's the expression? My cheese would have slipped off the cracker at that point. It was, it was new, but it was really the next step. And all of the things that we learned about how to do this and how to engage with one another and Zoom, none of us knew what Zoom was really, or few of us knew what Zoom was. And yet it has become a part of our life. What if it wasn't new, what if it was merely next? And think about that in terms of, of, of who we are and how we do what we do as a community of faith. If we approached it from next rather than new, what if we were able to live beyond the seven last words of the church? You remember that, right? There's two versions of it. We've never done it that way before, or we've always done it that way before, okay? We have, in the last two years, we have broken so many of those assumptions because we needed to. And it wasn't just about expedience. It was about how God was preparing us as a community of faith to live more fully into our mission statement and our vision. Remember, as part of the Wesleyan community that's known globally as the United Methodist Church, we have a really particular mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we, and we embrace that mission through our own efforts to, to learn and grow, to be invitational and nurturing and inclusive of all of the people that God brings to us. And we're learning new lessons, and we've learned new lessons in the pandemic about what that looks like about a digital community as well as an in-person community, to be a hybrid community of faith where we're learning how to make space for people that will never set foot in on this campus. Now, this is what's next. Does that mean that everything that we were, everything that we understood about ourselves pre-pandemic was wrong, that was somehow Deficient? Of course not. Incomplete, maybe. Kind of conforming to the idea of we didn't know what we didn't know. But now we're in a place to consider next. What comes next for us as individual people of faith, as individual disciples? What comes next for us? as a community of faith. How is God right now, in this very moment, in your life and in our life, working us through predetermined expectations, working beyond limiting assumptions about what it means to be disciples in a community of faith?
in a post-pandemic world. Whatever that looks like. But the thing that I, I, I know and I can bear witness to, that just as God has been a part of, has been present, has been teaching, has been guiding, has been inspiring us pre-pandemic and through pandemic, that God will be a part of that work as we make sense of next and what comes next. Friends, there's no real end to this sermon. Not that I'm going to keep talking forever. There's no end to the sermon today because today is not about ends. This is the deep breath going into Holy Week. All of the things that Jesus experiences with his disciples, all of the ways that Jesus helps the disciples and the, the people who believed and the people who struggled with belief take their next steps. The next step isn't Easter, okay, in case some of you are wondering. We go to Thursday night where we share the table that Christ shared with his disciples on the night when he shared the Passover meal and he gave them a new image of what deliverance was about. And then Friday, when we worship with the gathered ecumenical community in Redlands to share the seven last words of Christ. And then Easter Sunday morning in this space to greet the sunrise, first light and share the celebration of the empty tomb. And then at 9.30, back in the sanctuary with the things that have come to mean something to so many of us with an Easter service. And the reality, once again, that Christ is risen. And in that resurrection, there is life and abundant life and new life and next life for us. So my encouragement as you move from this space and this time of worship is to, is to dig deep in your, in your heart and in your faith. Spend extra time in prayer this week with a simple question. Okay, God, that's it. What's next? Thank you for joining us for this podcast from Redlands First United Methodist Church. I hope that it has been a source of inspiration and encouragement for your spiritual journey. If you're interested in more information about the church, we would invite you to come to our website at redlandsfirstchurch.org. We hope you will join us in person, online, or via this podcast each week as together we open our lives to the movement of the Holy Spirit, that we might grow in faith and be strengthened in the ways that we reflect Christ's presence in the world. Mm -hmm.